Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. We wanted to take a moment to thank you for your continued support over the years. It's hard to believe that we've been having weekly in-depth discussions about movies since 2011. That's right, 12 years and counting. Producing this show is a labor of love for us, but it does require a lot of time and effort each week. If you enjoy our podcast and would love to help keep it going, there are some easy ways you can show your support. One is by using our Originals page to shop for the original source material that movies we've discussed were based on. That's right. In season one alone, we covered 13 films adapted from books or plays, from Charlie Kaufman's adaptation to David Fincher adaptations like Fight Club. In season two, we covered even more, like Powell and Pressburger's The Red Shoes and The African Queen from our series about legendary cinematographer Jack Cardiff. We can't forget about the four Jason Bourne movies we talked about. Love those movies. Well, the original trilogy, at least. <laughs> for our Richard D. Zanuck series, we did Jaws, Rush, Big Fish, and more. And for our horror series, we talked about John Carpenter's The Thing, which was adapted from Who Goes There? We did our first great car chase series with movies like Bullet, The French Connection, and Drive. And for the holidays, we did Preston Sturgis's Christmas in July. We had a great John Huston series with adaptations like The Maltese Falcon and The Treasure of the Sierra Madre. And for our baseball series, Moneyball with Brad Pitt. Have I told you lately how much I love that movie? Uh, yeah, I think you have. Plus, our Magician series and Heist film series had adaptations as well. Tons of page-to-screen gems. Listeners can find the details and links to the original material at thenextreel.com slash originals. Every book, play, or movie you buy through our links helps support the show, and it's no extra cost to you. So dive in and get your next read today. Thenextreel.com slash originals has all the films adapted from other sources that not only we have covered, but all of the shows on the Next Real family of podcasts. Check it out and get reading. Support the show and build your reading list. It's a win-win. Head to thenextreel.com slash originals. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to The Next Reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. 
in just a matter of seconds, you're going to hear a classic episode of this show from back in the day when we called ourselves Movies We Like. It took us a while to settle into the show's format, so you'll notice some differences as you listen to these episodes. For instance, it takes us a bit of time to actually get into the conversation about the movie. Things like that. But we're still proud of the conversations about the movies themselves, and we think they're worth keeping in the library. So enjoy these episodes from our back catalog. And you can become part of our Discord community, learn more about the show, and find out how you can become a supporting member at thenextreel.com. So thank you, everybody, for downloading and listening to The Next Reel. We appreciate your time and attention, and we hope you enjoy the show. Boom. How about that? Tell me about Wreck-It Ralph. I loved it. It was fantastic. It was? Really? It was. It was great. I loved just the whole world of you know inside all the video games and you know it's just a it was a clever conceit how they're kind of all connected through the the power line and and you know video game characters can go uh you know hang out and and go into different games and all that it was just it was really well written great characters and uh you know I, i was really happy to see that it was actually done so well with such you know, solid character development and um, a really great story. Well, okay. Now I uh, we're I'm gonna go with the kids to see it uh, shortly. Um, but this was now last week. You made the distinction between Pixar and Disney animation. That this is a Disney animation film, right? Ostensibly, what is the difference anymore? Well, it still is considered different. I mean, it's just, it's like you know saying the uh, a, a film released under under touchstone is is uh, a disney film it's under the same umbrella but by having the different distinction it allows them to essentially kind of release different types of films and have different people involved and it, it really is all about the people involved but you know splash when that was released released under touchstone back in 1984 it, it that was disney's attempt to create a new type of film that they could make <clears throat> excuse me that that um didn't necessarily feel like a typical what you'd call a disney film um it could be a little more adult there could be some some you know some more adult humor pg rating nudity whatever it was you know they they could do something a little different while it was still under the same umbrella and same mm-hmm. thing with pixar and i mean pixar they did end up kind of merging into Disney, but it's it is run by a very different set of people, and you know they have a very distinct set of I I guess you know whatever you'd call kind of the Pixar guidelines. Now that being said, John Lasseter is heading up the current Walt Disney Animation Studios, and and with him uh, leading the charge with with all you know the good number of recent ones. I mean, he definitely was behind a lot of the storytelling elements, and is on on Wreck-It Ralph as an executive producer, but really it's a different group of people managing the film and and making it. And so you're right, ostensibly it's all kind of under the same umbrella and it's animated films coming out of the castle. But um, but it's it, it's not necessarily just a, a Pixar film with the Pixar group of people behind it. it. This is a Disney film with the Disney people behind it. But, you know, I guess my, my only point is, I, I think we could see 
there there was a there is a, a kind of a radical transition when John Lasseter became more involved in at Disney and less involved in the daily activity at Pixar. The movies at Pixar, um, I think, have uh, there. It'll be interesting to see what happens with uh, you know some of these prequels that are coming out. Um, but uh, you know, Wreck-It, his I think Lasseter's influence on Wreck It Ralph, at least from what I've seen uh, in the trailer, is very apparent. And his absence from direct day-to-day activity on some of the other current Pixar films is also notably apparent. That said, um, you know, I, I think he's an interesting find in director Rich Rich Moore. I'm interested to see this movie. I'm, I'm going, you know, a little bit later to, to see it with the kids. Uh, you know, here's a guy who came from, um, you know, TV. And this is his first big movie, it looks like. Uh, and, and it's one of my... Uh, uh, very favorite uh, uh, films or a very favorite series, Futurama. Uh, uh, comes off of Futurama, so I'm I'm very excited to see kind of what he does with it if it uh, if it stands up. I think what we're seeing is the blurring lines between Disney and Pixar, and and um, y- you know I I hope for more of that Lasseter influence than than less because I'm not sure that I it's one of those it I, it's almost dirty to say it, but it's sort of the Steve Jobs effect. You know you. You, you want to see what that what what that visionary effect is going to to have on these individual films. Well, and it it's definitely been apparent in all the Disney animated films released since he came on board, whether it was a theatrical release or a straight to DVD release. I have sat through all the Tinkerbell films, the straight to DVD <laughs> Tinkerbell films with my daughter, and I've been surprised every time. Going, God, this, I mean, they really could have probably done a theatrical release with this. It's actually so much better than I ever would have given it credit for, for one of my least favorite Disney characters ever created. It doesn't even and, seem like a character. It's like, it's well, like a, a punctuation mark. Exactly. That's what, that's what Tinkerbell always was. And I always hated her. And then they made these, these films. And I'm like, gosh, I actually like Tinkerbell now. And I never thought I'd say that. Um, and I mean, if you look at the DVD results, I mean, they, they clearly know what they're doing. John Laster clearly knows that, that making a good story and creating good characters and, and, and um, just making a, a well-made film is really how you make money, regardless of whether it is theatrical or not. Because The Secret of the Wings, the latest Tinkerbell DVD that just came out, is like the top of the sales right now. I mean, it's doing uh, gangbusters. And I'm not sure if they were expecting that or not, but... I mean, it really surprised me when I saw it way up there. And I, and my daughter's already watched it like five times in the last week. So, I mean, obviously, they have they know what they've tapped into with that. So I'm, it's good storytelling. I'm going to say this out loud, and I, I know nothing will ever happen uh, with it, but I, I just want to put it out there almost as a dare. I think we need to have a new list for the website, and it's going to be Andy's favorite Tinkerbell DVD movies. <laughs> 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 It'll be right next to our list of of famous uh, famous composers that <laughs> that start with a J. <laughs> the most obscure lists ever. I guarantee you won't find those on anyone else's. <laughs> no, you will not. Just wait for our lists of list page to go live. Uh, well, that's fascinating. I'm excited to see it. Uh, assuming my kids get their homework done, uh, uh, yeah. we're that that is the uh, that is going to be the prize of the day. I don't have to worry about that yet with a six and a two year old. <laughs> oh, goodness. As long as they eat their dinner, they got to go. <laughs> <laughs> the bar the bar changes. The bar changes. 
so that's fantastic. I'm I'm excited for it. Uh, and I and I, I bet. I mean, Argo has hold has held the top spot at the box office um, for the last like three weeks or so. It's done really really well at the box office, and it has beat out everything else that's come out in the last three weeks. But I bet that Wreck-It Ralph is probably going to be the film that knocks it out. Maybe Flight. Actually, both of those films probably are going to push Argo out this week. But I don't know. Flight's not doing all that great. and uh, But Wreck-It Ralph is blowing the doors off uh, in the uh, in the IMDb popularity. It's, uh, it's, yeah. it, it's... Wreck-It Ralph, I mean, it was jam-packed last night. It, it was completely full. There were a lot of people at the waiting in line to see Flight as well. But obviously, Flight is you know just going to be adults whereas uh wreck it ralph i mean that's definitely one you can bring the whole family to well judging by my highly uh scientific empirical uh browsing of my facebook list uh there are facebook uh, timeline a lot of people are talking about wreck it ralph and uh, adults talking about the joy they get out of seeing these really well done kids films uh or family films i should say uh and i haven't seen one person mention a single thing about flight yeah if that if that says anything, well, Facebook has all the answers. <laughs> it does. It does have all the answers. Uh, interesting that Cloud Atlas is still sort of holding its own. You think well, that's and, you and think that's is, picking up this speed? This is a sign of that slow burn that yeah. we're talking about. It actually has grown. It hasn't dropped off as far as the the money coming in. It's actually been increasing, and so I, I think it it is going to kind of end up being a little bit of a slow burn. So, I'm glad for that film. I as much as I was. Uh, I don't know how you would characterize my feeling toward that film, but I'm I'm excited to see it do well. I have a feeling that Cloud Atlas is going to be a film that kind of grows in people's um, uh, moves up on their like lists over time as as it settles with them and they see it. Yeah, more times. Yeah, yeah I, no, 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 I, can I, buy can't, that. I, buy I can't that. wait to see it again. I buy that. Where can people find you, please? Uh, people can find me at ifindyourlackoffaith.com. <laughs> <laughs> yes, they can. <laughs> and on Facebook at uh, our Movies We Like page. Yes, indeed. You can find me at PeteWright.com uh, or uh, make sure to visit the show at RashPixel.tv. Subscribe to the show on iTunes. And if you have a second, please uh, deliver us a favorable rating. Please, please, if you're listening to the show, we hope you find it favorable enough to rate it favorably in the iTunes. It helps other people discover it. And we sure appreciate all the stars on which you bestow the show. Okay, what else do we have to talk about? Do you have tra- do you have trailers we should talk about today? Uh, we haven't even talked about trailers. We haven't even talked about them, so I'm not sure if I should bring any up. There's a new GI Joe trailer out. GI Joe Retaliation. Yeah, I'm a- <laughs> I uh, I got a lot of joy out of the first GI Joe. I'll tell you what, I got a lot of joy out of reading the script for the first GI Joe. <laughs> I love I love GI Joe. I I have why? So you didn't like the movie? Uh, you know it. I didn't not like it. It just was, I guess it was just very by the books and, you know, it delivered what it was set out to deliver. I just, uh, yeah, I guess I was hoping for more. I'll, although I don't know why I should have been hoping for more with a G.I. Joe film. Yes, hope for less and you will be thrilled. That's right. That's right. Always hope for I, my less. My bar was set way too high. <laughs> uh, <laughs> It's, it's, uh, I, it, these are the, these were my go-to toys, you know, oh, at, at just that right age. And there was that fateful day, uh, when there, the GI Joes, uh, you know, tried to, tried to hold the fort, uh, of my 
bed uh, against an invasion by the Transformers and actually lit my bed on fire. <laughs> and that was a that was a fateful day. And it wasn't toy fire, people. Oh, <laughs> it my. was a, it was a fateful day for the Joes. And it was all because you know what it was? Snake Eyes doesn't know how to take orders. <laughs> He's always going jacket. off on his own. <laughs> that that rogue. Yeah. <laughs> you know the the like, thing is I don't understand how the uh how the millennium uh you know the millennium wheel in London I don't know how uh, that thing's still still around cuz the fantastic four totally destroyed that thing. That, and there's a giant there's up. a giant hole in the river right there because of the silver surfer. How are they able to do how many times so London is becoming the new New York. How many times do we blow that place up in movies and it's still around? Exactly. Exactly. Um, well, you know, they already destroyed the Eiffel Tower in the first GI Joe. Yeah, that's right. They needed something, yeah. something new. <clears throat> All right. So let's. Uh, shall we talk about this film? Well, should we uh, just say happy anniversary? <gasps> that's today. <laughs> that's today. Andy, I forgot our anniversary. <laughs> I'm so embarrassed. What? No cod. <laughs> You never remember. <laughs> it is. It's uh, our our anniversary. We've done it. We've been doing this for a year. I know a whole year. We haven't missed a week. No, it's been a solid year of, and in of fact, movie I, joy. I think we've inserted a couple of weeks, and, ho and hopefully for more than just us. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a you know that's a really good point. Thank you, everyone, for uh, uh, everyone who is listening to this for joining us for these uh, weekly discussions on movies. And I think if if anything. Uh, it, you know, at least when I go into this each week, I think I, this is our job is to introduce people to movies they potentially have haven't seen or haven't seen in a long time. And if if we're if if we're, you know, shining a light on some great movies that people need to see, then then our mission is is uh, successful. So definitely, definitely. You you have any additional words of wisdom? It's you know, it's just it's always a great opportunity to talk about movies and talk about the the art of film and the joy of film and just it's it's a very exciting medium and uh, it's an as we've talked about many times on the show, it's it's a medium that is always pushing the limits and pushing the boundaries and you've got amazing artists working in it, always trying new things and uh, coming up with amazing films because of it that live in our memory and you know the whole conceit of our show is you know movies that we like and talking about films that specifically are ones that that we connect to and uh, it's a joy going back and and revisiting these films and and learning so much more about them and getting so much out of them and i i definitely hope that that uh passion and interest and enthusiasm for the magical world of film is uh is coming through and i i I think that our uh, audience is hopefully enjoying it, and I, I thank them all for for being a part of our show and, and keeping us going. Yes, I agree with that. Andy said his stuff better. <laughs> Pretty much use what what Andy said with my head, and we'll be fine. That's what I was going to write on the card for you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, so today we are uh, our anniversary episode is a it's a. Man, what a great film this was. Yeah, truly. This was I'm going to I'm going to go on the on the record. This film succeeded for me in all the ways that Bullet failed. Exclusive of 
the car chase. Even yeah. though uh, the car chase, I, I think uh, we'll talk about that. But this was, to me, a great story. And it, it's where I felt like Bullet was a little bit lackluster. It's You're definitely right. I, I think aside from the, the great car chase, which we definitely going to talk about um, uh, coming up here, they they had a, a really interesting story, a story that made sense. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and it all tied so well together with a gritty realism and this kind of pseudo documentary vibe all the way through that really made you feel like you're tapped into this kind of grimy world of, of, you know, police on the streets tracking down uh, uh, drug dealers. Yeah. Yeah. And and uh, I I think one of the, the most important things we can get from this movie is that um, uh, w- we need friends with better nicknames. <laughs> I... <laughs> Either that or, or we can call each other Popeye and Cloudy. <laughs> <laughs> I've been thinking about about the backstory that we'll need to invent so that I can effectively call you Popeye. Yeah, you know, yeah. and people say, "Well, he killed a man in prison or something like that." Yeah, right. I don't know. I don't know because he did. But the uh, the characters, I I think of um, this this movie has is another one of those in a period of uh, particularly great uh, firsts. Uh, and so, just to kick it off, this is the first R rated film to win an Oscar. Yep, for Best Picture, it it won lots and lots of awards. Um, of well, not lots and lots. They won the writer awards, uh, five uh, Academy Award wins: Best Picture, Philip uh, D'Antoni, uh, Best Director, William Friedkin, Best Actor, Gene Hackman, Best Adapted Screenplay, and Best Film Editing. Uh, the terrific editing work of uh, Jerry Greenberg. Uh, how let's since we started off with Bullet um, uh, uh, last week, let's uh, the car chase last week. Let's uh, let's start with the car chase this week. What do you think about the French Connection car chase? How it was put together, how it was architected, and the fact that it is actually a car chase between a car and a train. Well, and that's I think what makes it stand out, right? I right. mean, when uh, when Philip D'Antoni, the producer of this, it was in uh, was kind of doing location scouting and trying to figure out the car chase with William Friedkin. They were walking the streets of New York and they were talking about, okay, what can we do that's, that's different than what, uh, than what they did in Bullet specifically because Philip D'Antoni also had produced Bullet and so he was very connected to the car chase in that film and obviously wanted to kind of continue with, with another great car chase here. So he and Friedkin actually walked New York. They walked like 50 blocks or something just kind of looking around, trying to find the right streets and all the stuff that they could do something new and something different. Uh, The first thing that they kind of tapped into was um, they needed it to be in the city. This was a city full of people. And it, you know, D'Antoni's initial reaction was, let's put it out. You know, it goes outside of the city and it's out on the the streets where we can move really fast. And Friedkin's like, there's all these people here. This is a city of people. We have to be in the city. So they were really trying to find that right spot. And as they were walking around, neither of them actually remember who came up with the idea, but they just remember hearing the train, the L going above them. And they're like, you know, that's, that's a really interesting thing. It's so, um, a, a part of the city. It's just, it's, 
you know, the, the L is, is all through here. And they came up with the idea, you know, what if, you know, it, what if the car is chasing that? It has this interesting energy. The train makes this sound. It's like got its own beat as it's going along. It's kind of this driving force. It doesn't stop for traffic, all of this sort of stuff. And because of that, they, they came up with the idea of him, of uh, Popeye Doyle, chasing the train and having to pursue it. And it came up with an absolutely fascinating idea of this, of this chase that um, really, I think, stands the test of time because you do have this car having to deal with other traffic and pedestrians and, you know, trash and, and uh, walls and things that the train doesn't have to worry about. And it turns it into a totally different type of car chase where you're pursuing something that you can't just directly pursue. And it put a lot of interesting things in the way because of that. And it made for, a, I think, just one of the, the best car chases out there. I, I absolutely agree. It's, uh, there's this sense of, it's kind of a, a different sort of sense of, of out of control of this chase. Uh, yeah. Because, uh, as you say, you know, Popeye's chasing this thing that he can't, uh, you know, he can't just get in front of and run off the road into a gas station. You know, he can't, he can't just stop it. Uh, uh, you know, he is simply, um, you know, at its mercy, at its yeah, mercy. He, he, it's not like he can shoot the tires. Exactly. Out, That's exactly right. And, and, uh, and, and you, I, I think Gene Hackman, um, you know, is, is one of the most exciting drivers to watch, you know, his mm-hmm. just sort of frenetic energy is, is, uh, uh, and, and his sense of the portrayal of his, his exhaustion at the end uh, mm-hmm. of this chase, when he gets out of the car and sort of stumbles from it, uh, once the train actually, you know, sort of exhausts itself and runs into the end of the line, um, you know, is, is one of the most sort of palpable kind of, uh, sweaty senses of completion i think at the end of this car chase that is uh, um that, that was really exciting to watch i i think it's funny to to read you know i i was looking up at the the wikipedia page on the car chase and and it's interesting to read read it in this context so i'm i'm reading from wikipedia friedkin's plan included fast driving coupled with five specific stunts number 1 doyle is sideswiped by a car in an intersection Number two, Doyle's car is clipped by a truck with a drive carefully bumper sticker. Number three, Doyle narrowly misses a woman with a baby stroller and crashes into a pile of garbage. Number four, Doyle's vision is blocked by a tractor trailer which forces him into a steel fence. Number five, Doyle must go against traffic to get back on a parallel path with the train, intercut with these car car scenes underneath the elevated train as additional footage, shots facing the car, not from the driver's perspective, shots from Bushwick, Brooklyn, particularly when Doyle misses moving truck and slams into a steel fence. So Friedkin's plan (laughs) included these five points when read, uh, you know, in this... um, When read in this context, seems like this is going to be the most boring car chase ever. (laughs) Right. And and yet that transition from uh, from, uh, you know, point and script to screen uh, ends up being really powerful. What's your what are your thoughts on on making that transition and and particularly in the cinematography from Owen Roisman and and, uh, Jerry Greenberg's editing that actually bring this to life? Yeah, well, I mean, I think you're absolutely right. There's a there's always a translation going from script into actually physically doing it and making it really happen. And this was an example of of the script that actually ended up having quite a bit of of 
ad-libbing and reworking done while they were uh, while they were shooting they would kind of rework scenes and even the the my understanding is the car chase scene wasn't written out quite this way in the script and um, a lot of it kind of you know came by happenstance for example the actual the vehicles that clip Doyle as he's driving down uh, the road racing down uh, were completely unintentional it was all supposed to be near misses and that first car um <laughs> the the stunt driver accidentally just i guess they they weren't paying attention or whatever and they <laughs> they pulled in too far and they totally clipped the side of the vehicle it worked really well it actually ended up working really well um the dump truck i'm not quite sure or the garbage truck i'm i'm not quite sure if that one was uh, was an intentional one but considering they said it was all supposed to be near misses makes me think that it probably wasn't supposed to happen either. And then, you know, swinging around the corner and crashing into the wall, Gene Hackman was really driving and, and he wasn't intended to do that either. And he literally, you know, took the car right into the wall. The, the actor driving drove it right into the wall <laughs> and just all that stuff. And then you take that and by having those, you know, happy accidents, I guess you could call them <laughs> on set. <laughs> Um, the, it, it made for a much more exciting, uh, bit of editing and, and something that they could really, um, bring with energy to the film. And the fact that they were filming all of this, it wasn't shot high speed or anything to make it look like they're driving faster. Uh, oh, sorry. So I undercranked to make it look like they were, um, driving faster. Um, it, they actually were driving a car going like the master shot. They drove for 26 blocks, um, shooting you know as fast as they could and they were going like 90 miles an hour Friedkin was shooting actually and um, they had a cop with them they didn't close the streets off they had some stunt drivers out there but all the pedestrians were real pedestrians just kind of walking the streets they they completely did it illegally they didn't have anything closed they just you know they had their stunt drivers in place to hopefully make it all work and all they did to really kind of make it um make it so it was kind of safe was they had uh, a little one of those little police gumball lights you know that they kind of <laughs> magnetically just sit on top of the car they had that going in they had the siren wailing and they shot the shot and that's the only thing that kept you know all the other people out there all the other traffic and pedestrians aware that they needed to watch out for this car barreling down the road 90 miles an hour so when you have a master shot like that and then you get these shots of hackman driving from you know the front and the side and and you get all of the shots of of the train and everything else you give that to the editor he's got so much stuff to work with and it and Friedkin actually said that this was one of the easiest scenes in the film to edit because they had such great footage and it all had an amazing energy and you didn't need much more than that and I think by the nature of the speed and the just the the obsession that is driving Hackman or driving Doyle in this film, particularly in this scene as he's pursuing this train, it that obsession just drives that scene. I mean, he's so obsessed with catching uh, catching the killer or catching the guy who's uh, trying to shoot him, and uh, it just builds to that amazing end. And it, you can't you can't beat it. And I think because of the nature of film, it's always going to jump off the page more when you're when you're shooting a scene like this rather than just reading it on the page like you were just doing. The uh, I, okay, two two questions. The first one is I think uh, uh, so. I think specifically referring to the front bumper shot, 
Mm-hmm. Uh, this is another one, and I, I don't know if it, where it, this is another one from you know the vast repository of all things uh, that must be true Wikipedia uh, that Roisman says in American Cinematographer magazine in '72 that the camera I think he's referring to the front bumper shot was undercranked to 18 frames per second. Mm, okay, gotcha. Um, but uh, and I was going to ask you about that. What is that? I mean, at 18 frames per second, that you know, when played back at 24, that makes everything faster. Right, right. Yeah, everything would be slightly faster. It's, you know, it's two thirds of a, of a, what would that be? It'd be two thirds faster or a third faster, something mm-hmm. like that. So just, just enough to make it look that much faster. And they're also shooting with the lenses that obviously could make it look like we we're going that much faster. Right. There's that sense of kind of compression. Mm-hmm. Uh, around us, and so that's. Uh, uh, but I, I get the same thing that you you do from Friedkin, who says, you know, we were we were barreling down these things at ninety miles per hour, um, and uh, so I don't know what that necessarily means. I wish I had more specificity from Roisman uh, on just how much of that was used because I it doesn't it doesn't look like it to me. So, I, you know, I'm not sure. It's just mm-hmm. um, uh, a lot of. A lot of talk, and I, I think yeah. you know, Friedkin being in the car, he probably has a different perspective than right. other right. people who are who are standing <laughs> by the side of the road watching. <laughs> the uh, the other one is then the uh, the the climax of this one. The the car stops. He stops at the at the at an intersection, is the right underneath the train, and then uh, we have that legendary shot, so to speak. <laughs> a legendary shot of a legendary shot. Right. That is when, when Hackman <laughs> shoots him in the back. Shoots him in the back as he's running away. Uh, the uh, that was a controversial, uh, controversial scene. It was. It was. Um, um, they had there was a, a police officer, one of the the many great police officers um, who was working with them on the film, Randy Jurgensen, who actually plays the police sergeant um, when Devereaux's trying to get his car out of uh, out of the lockup. Um, he um he was with them while they were he was kind of like their police guy with them and everything and he came up to Friedkin and he's like you know as they were rehearsing he's like you know it looks like this character is is shooting an unarmed man in the back which essentially is just making it you know murder it's it's turning you know it's making this cop commit cold-blooded murder essentially I mean he should be arresting him he should be taking him in but he shouldn't be shooting him in the back and Friedkin's response was, you know, it'll work. It's going to work. It's it's going to play. It's going to play right, and the audiences will will love it. And and um, Randy was really really unsettled by it uh, because you know a cop shouldn't be shooting anyone in the back, particularly an unarmed person, even if it was a criminal who was trying to shoot them. Now, fast forward to the premiere of the film. And Randy was sitting there nervously watching with the audience and Friedkin. And that scene plays and the audience leaps to their feet and starts applauding. They were so thrilled that that Doyle got his man and took this man down who, uh, I mean, we had seen him. He was taking shots at him. We saw him kill the the uh, French cop at the beginning of the film. He's already killed two um, subway cops on the train and caused an accident and essentially killed the driver via heart attack. <laughs> And, and, and he, he's getting off the train and yeah, it's, it's exciting when Doyle, 
uh, kills him. And yes, it is in the back. And yes, the guy's unarmed. But as an audience, we've we've been along for the ride with this. And it is thrilling to see him get his man. And and Friedkin went up to Randy and said, you know, it, it worked. And, and Randy's like, yeah, you're right. All of the like they never got any other complaints from any cops or anything. Everyone thought it worked. So I, I don't think a cop would get away with with using the uh, the the Doyle defense if they really pulled this. Well, and doesn't that get to what is at its really core what's enjoyable about this film? Uh, and maybe it's enjoyable to, you know, guys. Like, and I, I say that sort of the stereotypical kind of, because that's what I get when I watch this movie. I go to my guy place, mm-hmm. right? Which is, I watch a cop do what needs to be done. This is like the lethal weapon kind of uh, feeling, right? I watch this yeah. this prototypical sort of man's man do what needs to be done to get his guy. And there are no politics and there are no policies. He just gets it. Yeah. And the cost of that is... Uh, you know, watching him walk that ethical line in in a, a a sort of satisfying way, and the first time we see that is in uh you know in the shot of Nikolai. The second time we see that, uh, I think, play out in a questionable fashion is at the very end of the film. Yeah, we have this relationship established between Popeye Doyle. And a federal agent, Mulderig, who was assigned Muld- to Kate Muldrig, right? Muldrig. Play, played by Bill Hickman, the the uh, the stunt guy, mm-hmm. the stunt coordinator for this film, who um, was also on Bullet. Right, we know from the uh, he was the the hitman in uh, in Bullet, and uh, their relationship is contentious from the start. Uh, and at the end of the film, uh, the climax of the film, the the uh, you know our heroes are are hunting their uh, uh, hunting the the uh, frog number one, uh, right? Through this warehouse and and uh, stepping out of a shadow is a silhouette of a of a uh, of somebody. And Doyle uh, immediately responds by emptying his gun into that <laughs> shadow, right. and uh, and you know as as they discover that it was uh, it wasn't actually uh, frog it wasn't, one. It, it, was, yeah, it, it was the federal agent. It was Muldrig. It was Muldrig. And his reaction to that, you know they have a contentious relationship. You know Muldrig is kind of a jerk anyway. Well, and you know Muldrig, I mean, rightly so, Muldrig is is bitter um, about Doyle because Doyle has, has essentially done this in the past where yeah. <laughs> because of his obsessive nature ended up costing another cop his life. Right. And so Muldrig is not a big fan of that. And so, what do you think of the of how this plays out? So, the end of the the end of this sequence is him is is uh, is uh, uh, Popeye. It plays out in Technicolor, right? He he kills this uh, this cop, and his first reaction is to reload his gun and say, "Frog One is in this building. I saw him, and I'm going to get him." Yeah. So, what what do you think of this? I it's it's one of the most fascinating character portrayals of a cop that that i have seen and it's just amazing how um as as upset as russo his partner played by the wonderful top 70s actor roy scheider um (laughs) as one of our 70s favorites uh as as upset as russo is and russo of course his reaction is to to kneel over the body and check check for a pulse and everything is like he killed him you know he's kind of horrified and shocked that that Doyle just took Muldrig out. Um, 
And and then to see Doyle not even react to the fact that he killed him, but like you said, reload his gun, it, it all ties into this obsession that he has with getting his man. And it, it the way the film ends just drives the point home that you never even know how... Uh, how it the, this chase results really i mean you do from like the title cards at the end but the film leaves you with with doyle running through an empty building disappearing in the shadows himself and then this echoing gunshot that just rings out and and you have no idea really how to what lengths doyle is going to go to pursue um catching this guy and it it's kind of this this tragic story about this cop who just doesn't know how to let go and it's going to it drives him to the point where it just it kind of takes away who he is or i guess you could say it almost becomes who he is and that's really all that's left of of doyle is this obsessive bitter cop and it's a fascinating portrayal of doyle versus charnier the the frenchman frog number 1 and how doyle is kind of portrayed as this uh, kind of this guy who has to live on the streets and is bitter and is kind of just an angry person and an obsessive person. He's a cop who he has to stand out in the cold watching while the criminal sits inside eating, living a lush life. You know, the criminal is always one step ahead of him, it seems. I mean, even when you go to Doyle's house where, where um, Nicoly is shooting at him, the apartment complex that that Doyle lives in looks like a prison. I mean, it's almost like he's created this life for himself that is his own prison. And he's locked into this obsession and he can't get out. And at the end, it's just, it doesn't matter really if he gets his man or not. It's just this this tragic character that we're watching. And it really drives the point home so well at the end. And then when you do see the title cards and you see that, that Charnier was never caught and he's believed to be living back in France, it just... It just goes to show how how fruitless it is, and it makes it that much more tragic for Doyle. And you wonder who he shot. Yeah, right. <laughs> that right. one gunshot at the end—you have to imagine somebody else was uh, at his mercy. And and I think it's it it is interesting in the title cards at the end. You also see that that um, this obsession of Cloudy and and Popeye in particular uh, is ends up being fruitless in another dimension. It is it leads to his reassignment right. out of narcotics. So here is a guy who has devoted his his life to, uh, this character has devoted his life to, um, you know, to the fight of the narcotics trade, doing whatever he needs to do to, to do it. And it turns out whatever you need to do to fight the narcotics trade is too much. There is a point where you can go too far. Yeah. And, uh, and we're seeing how the system uh, does not uh, account for whatever it takes. Exactly. Um, you know, we've, we've talked a lot about just sort of the, the frenetic pace of, uh, the, the kind of third act sort of from the chase on, uh, but there is, uh, I'm interested in your take on the very middle of the film, because I think one of the things that this movie does so well, as, as well as it does this, uh, you know, the, the car chase, the car train chase, it, it does the foot chase. Which, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's, and it's. <laughs> One of the just the best scenes of the film. It is yeah. one of the best scenes of the film. What can you would you talk about what you uh, what you love about that? It's uh, this is another great example of editing and and the the way that it's shot and and also I think a huge part of this goes to uh, Don Ellis's just fantastic score that he did for the film. 
um, it's it, it really has this this um, this quality that that keeps you on edge and it's uh there's this dissonance created in the music and he you know he's using like uh quarter tone trumpets and all this interesting stuff and and this particular scene he's got all these bases that i think he had nine bases just kind of hitting these notes this kind of pounding as 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 doyle is on foot um following frog one um through the streets of new york and it's so exciting because you know that they both know what's going on in this game. Charnier clearly knows that Doyle is following him. Doyle knows that Charnier knows that he's following him. And this this actually happens all the way through the film where both the cops and the bad guys are aware of the other. But it's it's as if they're both so convinced that they're the smarter man that they'll always be able to um, elude the other. And this scene is a perfect example of that and how Charnier really has such a such um, a, a sense of Doyle and how to play him and how to how to elude somebody. And just that whole back and forth cat and mouse bit in the subway where it leads to Charnier pulling off in the train and Doyle unable to get through the doors, just pounding on it. And he sees Charnier looking at him, acknowledging, yes, I know you've been there the whole time. And he gives him that condescending little wave. It just, I mean, it's, it's, that's one of the best exclamation points at the end of a scene. And you just can't get better than that. I, I was watching this last night and thinking to myself, you know, this is a scene in particular, right? What's going on here is, you know, it's it's that great I, I i had never seen this in a movie prior to this right but but since then it's happened I, you know I, I can sort of recall movies where they they've done this again and and i think it, french connection really does it the best where you have the one character who is trying to get away from from the chasing police officer and he keeps stepping on and off the train trying to time it in such a way that the doors will close and you know the other character will be trapped off the train and um and that's exactly how it plays out in this film and in this sequence, I I found myself thinking this would this you could practically put a laugh track, a live audience to this film and get laughs in all the right places. Like it is yeah. as serious and as as uh, sort of intriguing as the music is and as uh, that sort of energy. It's downright funny. It, it is, is funny. They do this so well and as seriously as you can see Gene Hackman's obsession just boiling over. And that's what's so great about this because he's been he's he's been he knows that Charnier's made him. He knows that he's chasing him uh, he, he, sort of fruitlessly. He's, he knows that he's not secretive. And at the end, he he, he just boils over and he just mm-hmm. gives up all pretense. And that's what the, the energy of him chasing the train fruitlessly you know knowing he's not going to be able to stop the train but pounding on the doors is the ultimate payoff to what ultimately is a 10 minute um you know sort of uh, walking scene uh that leads up to that yeah uh and and i you know to to me as as good as that is uh so is the execution of this of the sequence on the street with all of the the police officers who are kind of on this sequence trying to figure out who's going to walk after whom right uh, and they keep doing that handoff uh, as they walk the freezing streets of um, of New York City. Yeah, when they're following Sal Boca around. Right, right, right. And, they, and he's he keeps seeing them, and they know they've been made. And it's amazing watching that game as they, you know, essentially 
there's three of them out there, and or four of them actually, or uh, probably more for all we know. I think we right. only see four. But yeah, one follows one, and then when he gets made, then the other kind of comes in, and it's it's a fascinating way to play this cat and mouse game. Well, and it and it leads to Doyle uh, standing across the street from a restaurant watching uh, Devereaux and or and um, Charnier eating escargot. <laughs> right at a fancy restaurant for for like it feels like <laughs> for like six hours. hours yeah exactly it's like the longest meal ever it's the longest meal ever and that you know that is a uh that i thought was a really i mean uh, uh, to me and i you know others may find this you know not as not as interesting to me the sequence was um was exciting in its uh in in the slow pacing that it maintained right i mean i i think the intrigue of it is is just watching these guys you know, try not to be made, even though they had been made long ago. And I think that was a that was just really expertly done and placed at a perfect point in the film, um, you know, kind of right before things really pick up and don't stop until the end. And it's a great um, something else about the nature of this film with these scenes and a lot of these scenes is there's so much of it done with no dialogue. You're just right. watching the police procedural essentially done in a way that you really hadn't quite seen done in police procedurals before. And it's just so intriguing. I think that's why it did so well, probably all around the world is because it's just, it's, you know, you're watching the pictures, you're watching the images of, of these things happening and you don't have to worry so much about the dialogue. And it just, it really just made for just an absolutely fascinating film. So uh, moving, let's see, we haven't really talked about the story yeah, which is based on a true story, which is based on an actual case that uh, the two real uh, guys that uh, um, uh, Doyle and Russo are based on, Eddie Egan and uh, Sonny Grosso, who both actually are in the film and actually continued starring in films and TV shows for years after this. I think after this, Eddie Egan was in like 20 plus movies and TV shows always is kind of that cop character. He plays the captain in this film. But they actually, this film sets it up very much the same way. These these cops who just have a, no matter whether they're on duty or off duty, they always are keeping their eyes open and they notice things. And it, it happens just the way it happens in this film. They're sitting in a bar and they notice this guy kind of spending money and a guy who they hadn't seen before with some people that they did recognize. And they're just very, their curiosity led them to follow him and essentially uncover this whole um, case of heroin coming in in cars from France. And it's it's a really interesting case, and it's interesting the parallels between what what really happened and versus the movie version of it. But um, I think that's one of the the nature the the elements of this film, the nature of this story that that does make it a much better story than Bullet. It's based on something that really happened, and it's it's told in a way that just feels real and honest and and uh, and uh, just gritty, and you just feel like you're in there really in this world with these cops that really were experiencing this sort of stuff. You know, I think you're, you're talking about sort of the gritty feel of it. Um, you know, I, I feel like we've been moving through the film backwards, but, but the way the film opens, uh, I, I think really sets a stage for, um, this, this sort of realization for the audience that this is going to be a different kind of police movie. Yeah. Um, 
And and it's another one. I wonder. I mean, do you what what do you know besides the the reaction of the police to of or of um uh, or the uh, what was his name the the Randy Randy Jurgensen. Randy uh, you know in the the shooting in the back yeah. uh, sequence uh the the reaction of this film by the police community. Do you have any? Did you find any any um, uh, sort of reference to that in general? How they felt about it, it was very positive, negative. I, I think they thought it was positive. I mean, uh, there was um, uh, they had Eddie Egan and uh, Sonny Grosso on set as technical consultants a lot of the time. And and Roy Scheider and Gene Hackman worked with them a lot to to really pull uh, from the realities of it. And they would actually go into scenes and kind of rehearse with these guys who would say, no, 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 you do it like this. You do it like this. And they went out with them for a couple of weeks beforehand on real raids. And they would show them like they would take them into bars and stuff, along with William Friedkin, who would go on these uh, these trips, too. They'd go into a bar and they'd they'd really toss it like they do the scene where Doyle and, and Russo go into the bar and they kind of, you know, have everyone up against the wall. They they have all the drugs out of the floor. Doyle makes that milkshake, mixing up all the drugs in the in the drinks and kind of ruining all the, the profits for all those people, right. I guess. Um and I mean, this is stuff that that Eddie Egan and uh, Sonny Grasso really would do. And so they introduced a lot of these elements to the story that weren't necessarily in the script, but that they pulled from the real life of these cops who were really down there doing it and were able to translate the realities of life on the street to uh, to this. And even with the um, the nature of Doyle's character being racist and and just not being nice to anybody and just seeing them doing all these shakeups when they go into the bars and stuff. It becomes a really um, interesting <laughs> portrayal of a cop that, you know, they were a little nervous about putting this out there. But even when they showed it to uh, African-American audiences, people were, they, they actually were excited that they saw this on the screen um, because this is what they saw they really saw cops shaking people up like this. And they're like, yeah, finally, we're, we're, we're seeing you portraying Whitey as he really is, you know? Mm -hmm. And so it's pretty interesting. And obviously it's different to things like Shaft where we're getting uh, a, an African-American cop who's, who's now in the position of power and doing this sort of stuff. But, but seeing a cop really acting like a cop did, I, I think... It, it made it more real to people. It made it seem like like the filmmakers were observing what the realities were as opposed to kind of the dragnet. And I talked about this last week as well, but kind of that dragnet police procedural from the 50s where everything it was by the books, ma'am. And it just it seemed so much a little hackneyed and, and maybe uh, behind the times. Mm -hmm. And I, I think. And I, I don't know if, if cops appreciated it or the audiences or what, but I, I mean, I think it obviously did tap into a nerve of people. I mean, this is, you know, early 70s, uh, you know, so things have definitely kind of changed culturally in in, in the uh, in the states. And so I think people tapped into that and they, they liked seeing this more realistic portrayal of co of cops as, you know, people saw them as they really were. Well, and that's what you get, I think, in the very first sequence. Uh, we have Popeye Doyle as a as a Santa Claus uh, that you can you know that Pop, well not in the first sequence I should say the first sequence you open up in France but in the first sequence in the U.S. Um, we have Popeye Doyle as Santa Claus and and Russo is uh, you know they're undercover on the street as street vendors and and they are you know they're 
they're looking after these you know drug dealers and what we see is this foot chase uh where cloudy gets cut and these guys go crazy uh on you know this uh, uh black you know drug dealer uh in the streets and they there's this wide shot where you see them tackle him kick him uh you know he's already down and but they go crazy on this guy yeah and that sets the stage for what is a as you say what ends up being kind of a i i don't know i mean you you bring up sort of the racist tendencies of these characters and i i i wonder if if popeye is necessarily uh racist or just you know hates everybody <laughs> that's, yeah that's my sense because i mean even when you know he makes the comment about um that what do you expect from a you know a, a derogatory yeah. n-word um and russo is just like well hey he could have been white and he's just like yeah that's what you get for trusting anybody yeah and and, 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 and at you, the yeah. end he's he's he does the same thing about uh you know he as the he, he says that the when the car is stolen in the in the junkyard right mm-hmm. uh and they find the car and they're the thieves he's you know derogatory uh s-word about the mexicans and right and he that he saw you know taking these uh cars and, and or t- robbing cars it, well that's the i mean he's he is <laughs> he the guy just hates everybody and and i wonder if this sort of amalgamation of kind of rage is that uh cultural in- interpretation of police against everyone of the 70s that we sort of are saddled with um and and just what Popeye Doyle represents to that, it, as much as he is, uh, you know, he represents the great sort of man rage that I find so satisfying uh, about this movie. Uh, he also represents all that is sort of kind of ill about the us versus them kind of system yeah. uh, that that uh, that we deal with. Yeah. And it's it's interesting. Hackman actually had a really challenging time playing this character he he couldn't connect with that nature of him he felt he was a very um just two-dimensional character he didn't really feel fully fleshed out ever and he actually had quite a few arguments in the beginning of the the making of the film with friedkin and d'antoni about it and uh, was so frustrated because he couldn't he couldn't tap into that anger and he couldn't he even dealing with with eddie egan who was on set he had a hard time connecting to him because he just didn't he didn't connect with that that kind of violent tendency and that kind of bitter uh, kind of hatred for everybody that he had and suspicion of everybody. And he he really struggled in so much that they shot that first sequence right toward the beginning of the film. And it really wasn't working out very well. Friedkin wasn't very happy with how it was all coming together. And Gene Hackman just said, you know what, if, if you need me to get off this film, you need to find somebody else, that's fine, I'll quit. And Friedkin uh, luckily convinced Gene Hackman that he was the right guy and that he should stay on board. And he said, no, no, let's just revisit that scene and we'll come back and we'll redo that scene at the end of the film once you've kind of settled into the character some more. Because Gene Hackman, I mean, he's really struggling with having to hit this guy, this this poor guy that they're just, you know, giving the shakedown to. Um, I believe it was Alan Weeks. And, and he... Um, and so they did. They came back and reshot that whole scene at the end of the film um, after they had lived in these roles for weeks and weeks and, and really gotten a better sense of the character. And Gene Hackman finally had a better sense of Doyle and 
and all of that. And they came back to that scene at the end and they reshot it. Um, and they got it done like in a half day. They just had, and they improvised it and they just really had the rhythm of it. And they had the feel of those cop characters finally. And it was much easier for them to do. And it brought that much more reality to it and made it, I think, a, a you know, a fantastic way to start the film and, and just throw you right into the mix with who these characters are. I absolutely agree. And, and, uh, and really sets the tone for the entire, um, for the entire film. I think it's fantastic. Uh, other other notable performances. Well, I think Fernando Ray is absolutely fantastic as Charnier. Mm-hmm. He's uh, and the funny story about him is Friedkin told his casting director he, uh, when they were she was trying to help him cast that role, and he said, "Oh, you know, there's this fantastic actor. He appeared in." in some of Luis Buñuel's films. Um, and I would love to have him. He, he just, he looks apart. He's got a great vibe to him. And she's like, oh, sure, sure. And so she called and it's like, oh, well, he's Fernando Ray. He's available. He's interested. And, and he wants the job. And, and Friedkin was like, great. I'll, I'll pick him up at the airport. This is fantastic. He goes to pick him up at the airport. And he recognizes the guy. But it's not the one that he, w- he was picturing that he wanted <laughs> him to cast. And, and, he's just, and he picks him up and takes him back to the hotel. And he says, oh, excuse me. I, I got to go make a phone call real quick. He goes up to his hotel room. He calls the casting director and just like just goes off on her because he's so upset that they cast the wrong guy. And, and he's like, I, I, he's, he's definitely was, you know, in the film, but he's not the one that I wanted. And, (laughs) and he was so upset, but then he's just like, he, he really thought about it and he came back to, uh, to Fernando Ray and decided to cast him because he did play such a great opposite to the Jimmy Doyle character. He had a kind of a very suave, a debonair, this kind of uh, Frenchman who lived the lush life look to him. He was older. He's got that great beard. And it works so well for the film. And he ended up casting the other guy, and I can't remember his name right now, the, um, the uh, Spanish actor. He ended up casting him in Sorcerer when he did that um, later in the 70s, again with Roy Scheider. But um, but I think to the film's credit, it was a real happy accident that he ended up with Fernando Ray in the role. It it uh, a happy accident indeed. The guy is fantastic, and I think there it is. Uh, you know, when you watch, <laughs> you just watch his interaction with uh, uh, you know with uh, the the police. It's just he he really owns, um, uh, he owns that that sort of uh, uh, protected. A bad guy role you know he is the guy who wanders new york with impunity and i think he just absolutely dominates this the cat and mouse kind of a, a feel of this movie yeah yeah and and, he, and he's great because he does always seem so much uh more aloof yeah than, than all that he's above all of that it's just it's really fun yeah uh let's see uh you know i i was just we we've talked a little bit about our love of roy scheider uh He's but, he's just in so many great seventies movies. We're gonna have to have the set Roy Scheider awesome seventies movies list. Well, I sort of feel list. like that. We need to start. We need to go back and add that to add add you know add a series for Roy uh, because uh, this this is one of those movies where you know we one of the things about that's great about Roy Scheider is is his ability to be a utility player mm-hmm. in these movies. I mean, he is. Uh, he ends up being he he sort of fills a, a role as the partner, mm-hmm. uh, but he is also uh, you know he fills the role as the um, as the uh, sort of moral balance mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. right, to um, to Popeye. Uh, but he's just so interesting to watch in his own right. And the transition that he makes from when they're tearing that car apart uh, and he is the investigative police officer and they're helping to, to just watch him move it through the car and then go in and actually talk to the Frenchman in that you could, that absolutely, you know, you can tell that sort of overly helpful, sarcastic New York cop uh, vibe is just so wonderful to watch. Oh, yeah. oh, well, you know, we get a lot of. We get a lot of cars here in New York, mm-hmm. uh, which is just fantastic. I just love watching him interact in these little moments uh, that he takes ownership of. Yeah, I mean, he 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 seemed a little surprised that he was nominated for uh, supporting, supporting actor yeah. uh, for this film, but I mean, honestly, he brings so much to the role, and it's it's uh, he has a great presence. I, I mean, I think it was probably right that Ben Johnson won for Last Picture Show, but um, but. I, Roy Scheider really is a presence that is important and very felt in this film. Absolutely, and this was this was the same year as Clute, actually. Yeah, he. Uh, this was a. It was early in his. Um, you know, particularly early in his career, uh, and and then Clute and French Connection come out, and uh, and then it was on to a, a really terrific seventies uh, and and early eighties for for Roy. Yeah. Uh, although, man, the guy was active. Uh, oh, yeah, he's he's <laughs> been very oh, active in you know all through his life. Yeah. Um, all right. So, did you ever see Iron Cross? I didn't. I didn't either. But that one really interests me. It was um, just because it was released so far after his death. Um. Uh, hmm. to, let's see. He died uh, February tenth, two thousand eight, and the movie was released in two thousand eleven. Interesting. Yeah, yeah, makes me want to makes me want to catch that one. Yeah, yeah. Uh, okay. Uh, who else? Uh, who else uh, stands out to you that you want to talk? Well, about? I, I, you know, I think um, Marcel Bazoufi um, playing Nicoli, uh, the uh, the French assassin. I think just does a great job. He's got a great look to him, and uh, you know, he actually did stunts back in France, and uh, I, I, I think it holds true more than anywhere else in the film when he he falls backward down the stairs after getting shot which no one knew he was going to do <laughs> <laughs> so uh, yeah i mean i i got to just uh mention him because it's just i mean wait 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 so wait a minute that say I that i never want to do say that again so he he fell backwards uh, after being shot, and but but that was not scripted. That was just him, you know. Yeah, he, he was gonna die, but yeah, and he kind of told them he's like uh, he's like oh, I really don't want to do this, and and they weren't <laughs> sure. You know, this you is know, gonna hurt. <laughs> what sort of fall he was gonna do? Um, but yeah, after the the squibs go off, I mean, he just if you watch, he just roll, falls backwards right on the stairs and rolls all the way down to the bottom. God, he really does. He really does. It's so great. Yeah, it's a Hackman double. I wasn't expecting that at all. It was a little, I think he was a little taken back that he actually did that. But, and yet, uh, you know, both of them play that so well. And Hackman just sort of collapses at the bottom of the stairs as, uh, as Bazoofy kicks him in this gut. Yeah. <laughs> Oh man! Uh, it, it is, yeah. But it, it leads to this. Um, uh, just another mention to this. Um, this documentary style that that Friedkin brought to the film. I mean, he came from the world of documentaries, and so 
he really wanted to lend this documentary style to this film. And he would actually rehearse scenes with the actors, but not let his crew on set so that when the camera operator came in, the camera operator didn't know where the actors were going to go. And so the actors would do their thing and the camera operator would just have to follow and, and just hope they, they kept him in their shot. But it led to that documentary style. And even with Bazoofy falling down the stairs like he does, it's just one of those things that they, they weren't really um, planning. It didn't really, um, uh, nobody was expecting if it would happen that way or not. And it just lends to that documentary style that they were just capturing things as they happened that they weren't expecting to happen. Yeah, this movie is a celebration of it. Yeah, Would and you... it really, it really did kind of start a lot of that kind of pseudo documentary, gritty style of filmmaking. It really began with this film. Uh, and so we talked about the we talked about the awards that the film uh, won, uh, but in terms of uh, performance in the box office. It did. Uh, it did well. I mean, this film. I, I believe Friedkin said that it cost. 1.5 million to make. They initially wanted 3 million. They had a real hard time getting the funding for this. They, I think they said they went to seven or eight studios trying to get the funds for it. Sometimes, a couple times to certain studios, and they just kept getting turned down. Um, interestingly enough, guess who said yes to it? Our buddy Richard D. Zanuck when he was still uh, heading up Fox. That's because he's a smart guy. He's a smart guy, and he actually told them. He's like, okay, they wanted $3 million. He said, you can have $1.5 million to make it, and you have to get started within five or six weeks because we're all going to be fired shortly thereafter. <laughs> <laughs> because he already knew you know, about the fact that his father was going to have to fire him and all of that stuff that was going on in the works. But he very smartly um, must have seen the potential with this film and knew something was there, and so he gave them the money to get it going. And uh, thank God he did because uh, it turned into a great film. Like I said, it cost $1.5 million. Friedkin said that they ended up going about $300,000 over, which at the time was a, a pretty big deal. But, you know, everybody ended up feeling that it was okay. Domestically, it went on to gross $51.7 million. Um, did a, a great job. I don't see anything about um, anything... Um, internationally as far as what it did around the world. But I mean, going from a one and a half million dollar budget, or I guess by the time they, they got it all spent 1.8 million um, to make just domestically uh, almost 52 million, they did a, a very good job. Yeah, that's a good bet. And, and they got a sequel out of it a few years later. Yeah. What'd you, uh, have you seen the sequel? I have. It's it's uh, another great example of Doyle's um, obsession as he then goes to France in pursuit of of uh, Charnier, and it's um, it's a it's an interesting film. I I don't like it nearly as much as I like the first one. I've actually only seen it the one time, but um, it does have some great stuff in it, though. It's it's worth watching just to kind of you know get a feel if you want to feel that sense of success of him actually capturing Charnier, then you should watch the second one. Well, and that's what I think is so, you know, so interesting about it is that it's it. They got the sequel and they got Hackman and Ray um, yeah. that that it is. It's not just a spiritual sequel. It's a you know, it's a real legitimate sequel that performed really, you know, comparably poorly, uh, you know, in the box office. It seems like it sort of puttered out. But uh, but it was a Frankenheimer, a John Frankenheimer film. So. Uh, you know that's a i you know we talk i i mentioned how much i love the the taglines 
of these <laughs> of the movie posters. Right. And uh, you know, French Connection, you know, there's never been a better time for a movie like this, you know. And the the <laughs> the tagline on the 75 1975 movie poster for French Connection 2 <laughs> is uh this is the climax. <laughs> really, people? Really? <laughs> uh, well, I guess you could say, you know, the first one does feel like, you know, anticlimactic. You don't get to see him get his guy. So yeah. it is kind of a funny tag. Yeah. There was somebody at Fox who actually wanted the tagline for the first one to be something. And I, I, I wish I could remember exactly what it was, but it's like, um, um, you know, this is the film that celebrates everything great about American violence or something. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, what kind of what kind of tag is that? What's it saying about uh, the American culture? Uh. Oh, that's too funny. Uh, OK, yeah, it's, that's the American culture. We get to do a podcast in which we laugh about the failure of our American culture. What else do you have to add before we wrap up? Well, you know, I just, um, it, it was an interesting year, 1971, um, especially as far as the Oscars go. The French Connection was up for Best Picture along with A Clockwork Orange, Fiddler on the Roof, The Last Picture Show, and Nicholas and Alexandra. The, um, uh, this was uh, the first time that a rated X film was nominated for Best Picture, and that was A Clockwork Orange. And because of that, a lot of people refused to participate in the Oscars. A lot of stars refused to present awards at the Oscars because of A Clockwork Orange being acknowledged. And um, But a lot of people, I think, probably look back and think that of the five films nominated, Clockwork Orange may be um, the best film on the list. I mean, Kubrick certainly has his fans. I really like A Clockwork Orange. It's definitely a hard film to watch. The Last Picture Show, I think, is one of the best films of the 70s. I, I think it's a stellar, stellar achievement. Uh, Bogdanovich did a great job with that film. And I would be hard-pressed to say which I would pick of the three if I were having to vote for best picture. I, I probably wouldn't vote for Fiddler on the Roof as much as I like it. And I've never seen Nicholas and Alexandra. But um, there is something about the French Connection that always has stuck with me. Um, it, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a visceral film like A Clockwork Orange, but it's a much easier film to watch. Um, it has a lot of the grittiness and drama that The Last Picture Show does. Um, but the way that it brings it all together in this this gritty, realistic story of, of cops and, and the chase and all of that, I probably would still go with The French Connection just because, uh, I mean, I just, I love the film so much, but I, I'm really hard-pressed to pick between the three. Just a lot of good choices that year. It's another great year of great films. And then Clute thrown in the mix. I mean, it's a, it a good year. Well, and you think about that. I mean, think about, uh, the for me, the one that stands out as one we haven't mentioned yet is Dirty Harry. Uh, that that hit that year, and it seems like Dirty Harry is, in terms of a character of you know, sort of the 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 do anything cop. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, that's a movie that did not perform as well as The French Connection in the box office, and yet I think carries with it a um, you know, arguably a more memorable title character. Uh, obviously, it got you know, it it got additional play as the years kind of went on, and and um, other Dirty Harry movies are made. But but between uh, Dirty Harry and The French Connection, I think French Connection is is a, a better film. Uh, certainly, yeah, by more, far. you know, more interesting film to watch. Um, 
and and uh, and yet 1971 had both of these these uh, you know both of these films kickstart. They, man, 1971 is a fascinating uh, fascinating year. Um, the this is one factoid I had not uh, I had not put in the sort of space of of context. The very first permanent IMAX projection system uh, was installed in Toronto in 1971. Wow, that's surprising to me. Right, that was surprising to me as well. Yeah, and th- and and here we are talking so much about IMAX, uh, you know, now, uh, so many years later. Fascinating, right, right. fascinating, fascinating. The other great cop film um, that I did briefly mention earlier, but was Shaft that came mm-hmm. out the same year, which was a, a very um, a, a different take on uh, kind of almost almost beginning, I guess the the whole black exploitation celebration in films. Uh, um, a really interesting cop film that really does take a different look at you know, kind of the world of cops when it's this this tough black cop Shaft. Shut your mouth and uh, <laughs> and all of that. It's it just a another great cop film from the era, but I, I still would have to put French Connection on top of of of, uh, of that one as well. You know the uh, uh, the highest. I think it was the was it the highest grossing or the first um, uh, the highest grossing independent film. Uh, also, you know, we're talking about that sort of uh, black exploitation. This is not necessarily uh, in that vein. It's Melvin Van Peebles' um, "Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song." Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. Badass song, <laughs> right? Uh, which which hit the top ten uh, in uh, top grossing uh, films in nineteen seventy one. Yeah, right behind Bedknobs and Broomsticks, who many don't realize was almost a black exploitation film, but due to some last minute <laughs> casting changes, Angela Lansbury they ended up with instead. Oh, <laughs> uh, uh, shut your mouth! Shut your mouth! That was actually going to be the tagline for Bedknobs and Broomsticks, but they they I think wisely, better oh. angels intervened. It was because they it was already taken. <laughs> They're like, oh man, <laughs> <laughs> missed opportunity, missed opportunity. Oh, All right, uh, next Isaac Hayes. Get- <laughs> <laughs> All right, we'll just uh, Angela Lansbury. <laughs> <laughs> shut, shut you about. <laughs> well, there's, there's a mashup I'd love to see. Oh, seriously. <laughs> All right, uh, so we're we're continuing our best car chase uh, uh, series next week. With yes, as as someone uh, as as Krista uh, rightfully uh, threw out on our on our Facebook page, oh, I you better be doing a French Connection and Ronin. Like, oh, <laughs> right? Oddly enough, <laughs> we're doing French Connection and then Ronin. <laughs> uh, I am very excited to talk about Ronin. This is one of my. Uh, this is this is the uh, of the movies in my collection that I can put on any time as just kind of background. Like this is a movie I, I, I use often. It is the highest play count play count in my collection of movies uh, is Ronan. I love this movie. Um, I never get sick of it. Never get sick. of it. So I'm very excited to talk about this movie. And, and it, we are moving, uh, it, we're moving, uh, moving up through time. Um, and uh, I think we've 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 we nailed the the uh, we nailed the seventies, 
and now yeah, it's, we now it's time to move there on. There are plenty of other great um, car chases that yes. were skipping we are between sk- 1971 <laughs> and, and uh, 1998. Yeah. But uh, but I bring it up because it's a it's a uh, Frankenheimer film and since uh, it, you know John Frankenheimer uh, ended up or, or had done uh, the uh, French, French Connection, Connection two, two. Yep. and yet we include him here in our best car chases and and he has had other great car chases and other great films yes he's a, a fantastic filmmaker and we'll definitely have to. Do a, uh, a Frankenheimer, Frankenheimer series, series one of these days. Yeah, fantastic film. And fantastic. then there was the Island of Doctor Moreau, <laughs> which, <laughs> which we won't be talking about. <laughs> all right, all right. I uh, I think I'm done. You done? I am done. Uh, thanks so much for joining us, everybody. We're out of here. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms, but in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM, and it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content, and we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash Transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash Transistor. Start growing your podcast today. Today.